Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Memorialized in song by the late Gordon Lightfoot, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in 1975 is considered one of the worst maritime disasters in history and the worst that the Great Lakes has ever seen. A grizzled sea captain, a boat that boasted to be one of the largest of its kind, and a crew of some 28 sailors set out on Lake Superior on a gray, windy November day. They departed Wisconsin on a voyage that would find them sailing into the history books, folk legend, and lore. But what really happened that day, and could it have been avoided? Do we know any more today than we did almost 48 years ago? And how does the story of a doomed freighter fit into the story of our nation and the history book of the Missing Chapter podcast? The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. Welcome to another edition of the Missing Chapter Podcast. I am Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Phil, before we get to uh, a great episode today, let's tell our listeners what we're brewing. It's Utica Coffee Roasting Company's Adirondack Blend. It's clean, it's sweet, it's a bit nutty as any Austin Power fan would recognize. Um, now listen, sometimes we work ahead a little bit mm-hmm. with, with some of our episodes because of the timing and so forth. So a little behind the scenes action of the missing chapter. We're, we're working ahead. It's actually May 11th at the time of this recording. Um, and this is, I think, going to air in sometime in August. But um, the reason why I'm sharing that is because 10 days ago, uh, I was on my way to school and I got a text from you. My truck says, hey, you've gotten a text message from Phil Horner. So I Listen to it, and sure enough, you told me the unfortunate news um, that Gordon Lightfoot had passed away. And then once we got to school, we started sharing uh, stories about Gordon Lightfoot and the fact that we always listen to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Right. Um, just something we have in the background as we're, you know, grading papers or whatever and getting ready for episodes. And it was that that moment that he said, "I think it's time. I think it's time we're going to do an episode uh, in honor of Gordy yep. and uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald." Yeah, you know, Phil, it was. I'd listened to that song a number of times and I was always taken by really the lyrics to that song. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is the telling of a story in and of itself, but beyond the lyrics to that song, I really didn't know any details surrounding the Edmund Fitzgerald and, and it's ensuing um, demise. So the more I did research on it, the story is just, it's fascinating to yeah. me. It's fascinating to me. And, you know, we, we talked to kids, we talked to other adults, colleagues of ours, and I said, well, are you familiar with the Edmund Fitzgerald? And it, it's very similar to my case, which was beyond the song, not that much. Right. So I'm hopefully going to add um, some, some detail to those lyrics. Now, if you're completely unfamiliar with the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald, um, I definitely think you should probably go to YouTube or, or look up the lyrics to the Gordon Lightfoot song. Um, it, it's definitely worth it. And um, it's very well done by him in terms of it's historically accurate. And I'm going to start off by just giving you some general background. The Edmund Fitzgerald 
was a cargo ship, a very, very large cargo ship. It was built in 1958 by the Great Lakes Engineering Works in River Rouge, Michigan, and operated by Cleveland's Ogilvy Norton Company. The vessel was owned by the Northwest Mutual Life Insurance Company. And the reason I bring that up, it was named for its chairman at the time. Huh. So I, th I think my initial you know, question was, who is Edmund Fitzgerald? Right. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's kind of a, an important you know, symbol to have someone, you know, a, a name associated with a ship. So it was named for its chairman at the time. When I say it's a large cargo ship, though, it was large. It weighed in at 13,600 tons. And it was 729 feet long. Now, in 1958, when it was constructed, christened, and first launched, it was the largest carrier on the Great Lakes, okay? And it remained so all the way up until 1971. It was labeled the pride of the American flag because it had a, a very large American flag that hung off the back or the stern of the freighter. And in 1964, it became the first ship on the Great Lakes to carry more than a million tons of ore through what's called the SOO locks. Okay. Now, primarily, if we're looking at a map of the Great Lakes, all right, I'm not sure how, how familiar our listeners are, depending on where they're listening to us in, but there are five Great Lakes um, and Lake Superior, which is where the Fitzgerald did the majority of its traveling, is uh, the largest and it's the most northern. And that'll definitely play a role, you know, in our story today. I'm sure some of you listeners are doing the same thing that I'm doing right now. And I'm, I'm Google imaging Mm -hmm. uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald, just to get a grasp. And there's this one image, and I believe it's from Wikipedia. It is. Uh, it, it's kind of like a side profile view um, where you can actually read the, the, the name Edmund Fitzgerald, and it's kind of an elongated picture down the back. It almost looks, and at first glance, I thought it was two boats. It's yeah. enormous. It's enormous. And and Phil, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm gonna before we, we start the story, I want to spend some time trying to describe what it looks like. Because it, it is kind of strange. Like if you're familiar, if you've ever been to the beach, if you live near water and you see these large freighters, these tankers, um, it, it looks similar to those. The, the stern section, the, the back portion, is where the ship's galley was, the dining rooms, the living areas, essentially, for the crew members. Okay, and we'll get into how many people... Uh, were actually working the Edmund Fitzgerald. That's also where the engine room is. So that, mm -hmm. that makes sense. The engine room is in the back. In the front, um, the front of the boat, you had the pilot house. So this is where the pilot would be. This is where it would be driven. You had the bell, which would initiate any sort of emergency or things that uh, the crew would be made aware of. Now, in between the pilot house and the front, and the stern section where you had the living areas in the engine room, all you really had is just this extremely long, thin portion that carried things, the cargo hold. And it was divided into seven different bays in the cargo hold. And again, we said it was just, it's an enormous, enormous ship. And I am, by my own admission, I'm not really uh, a boat person in terms of like terminology, my know-how. So I did some research on this. The majority of these um, bays are in the middle. Now on the outside, on both sides. So this is the, uh, the exterior really of the boat. You have what are called ballast tanks. 
and they actually fill with water when the ship is empty. Hmm. And the reason it did this is to actually give weight and keep the propeller of the boat in the water when it's when it's empty. Because it's probably so buoyant. It's so buoyant, yeah. so large that it would actually sit so high on the water. Now, the other thing I want to make you aware of, the Fitzgerald set sail from Superior um, loaded. So this was them returning from a job. And it had enough iron ore pellets to put her draft, which is the height of the side of the ship below the waterline. I'll say that again. The height of the side of the ship below the waterline at 27 and a half feet. Oh, oh my so, gosh. So uh, again, it, it gives you size and hopefully a little bit of perspective. Essentially a three-story building. Exactly. Exactly. And if you're looking at what Phil suggested going to Google, you're going to say, yeah, this, this is a massive boat. This light or this uh, level, rather, it was legal, but very it was a very heavy load, uh, which was certified at her launching. And we'll we'll get into that a little bit more when they left uh, to carry a load line of only twenty six and a half feet. So, yes, it was legal because you have kind of room for error, which is only a feet, a foot in this case. But the Coast Guard would later report, listen, this was probably a factor in what we're going to ultimately talk about with the Edmund Fitzgerald, the fact that it was so heavily loaded. You know, if, if anyone who's ever been on a cruise before, I've been on one cruise in my life. Uh, it was in 2014. It was a Disney cruise to celebrate my my niece's fifth birthday. And it was one of those moments you, you, you don't understand the magnitude of some of these ships until you're right next to them and walking on them. And I remember, you know, we, we see them on, on TV and so forth, but you walk up to the ship and the first thing that everyone asks how the heck does this I know, float? I know. It's you know so what I mean? Massive. It's like those those large planes you see where it's like, yes. okay, you could explain the physics to me on how this gets off the ground, but I still can't wrap my mind around I the can't wrap my mind around no. it. And I'm looking at that and, and trying to get a frame of reference of how big this thing is, and it's very hard to grasp, but it looks enormous. So, Phil, the thing I, I think I struggled with most, maybe more than in some of my other podcasts that I've done, there were so many things I wanted to make sure I included, whether it was the design of the ship and some of the explanation around you know, what exactly went into its construction. There's the story of what happens over a, a couple of days in 1975 that ultimately tells the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I'm talking about weather. I'm talking about, you know, sea terminology. Right. So I'm going to try and make sure that I include everything for our listeners. And, and hopefully at the end, you'll have a really good idea as to what transpired. So on November 9th, 1975, at 2.30 p.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald departed Burlington Northern Railroad Dock Number One, which is in Superior, Wisconsin. And as I said, it had approximately twenty-six thousand tons of ore, and they were bound for Detroit, Michigan. So again, if you're looking at Lake Superior, you know the design of this lake. It's almost like an upside-down U. Yep. There's a little bit of a hump of land, a peninsula that they have to travel over. And and you also forget how large, because it's a lake, Lake Superior is massive. Yeah. You think lake, I mean, you kind of in your mind have something smaller, but the Great Lakes are just enormous, especially to have tankers like this traveling on them. So the day prior, on November 8th of 1975, the day prior to the Edmund Fitzgerald departing, the National Weather Service began tracking a storm that was at this point moving across the central plain states. But they were also noticing that it was tracking northward towards the Great Lakes. So it was kind of literally and figuratively on their radar. But at this point, 
uh, it appeared what most meteorologists were saying, it, it was referred to as a quote unquote, typical November storm, okay. nothing out of the ordinary. Yep. So the captain of the Fitzgerald was a well-seasoned uh, individual by the name of Captain Ernest M. McSorley, who get this, ready? Had 44 years experience on the water. Jeez. So that, you know, it's obviously not 44 years as a captain, but working on boats, around boats, and being a captain. So this was by no means somebody who didn't have a good understanding as to what he was doing. He was taking no chances, however, with this storm. And he was following a protocol that was becoming common amongst freighters uh, who were traversing Lake Superior and all the Great Lakes, really. So after, shortly after leaving port in Wisconsin, what McSorley did was he made radio contact with another ship. And the two of them decided to travel together. All right. And this ship was the Arthur M. Anderson, which had departed two harbors, Minnesota. That's actually the name of the, the town. Two harbors, Minnesota. So the Fitzgerald would travel with the Anderson. All right. And they would kind of keep tabs on one another. Okay. All right. And that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize that they would do something like that, but you're like, okay, yeah, that's, it makes sense. A sister ship just kind of guiding it along. Right. right. Yeah. Keep right. an eye on it. Yep. And, and what was convenient is the Anderson, who was captained by Bernie Cooper, was following a very similar route to the Fitzgerald because they were on their way to Gary, Indiana. Now, <clears throat> I had to look this up while you were talking because we're talking about the, the, the size of the Edmund Fitzgerald and the size of the Great Lakes. The size of the Great Lakes, they cover more than 94,000 square miles, hold an estimated six quadrillion gallons of water. And it's one-fifth of the world's fresh surface water supply and nine-tenths, 90% of the U.S. supply. And I, you know what? It's good that you brought that up because you think about the storm patterns that develop over the oceans. It makes sense because they're of just course. such vast areas of water. Yeah. And obviously you're going to have very similar things that happen over the Great Lakes because they're so large. Exactly. So I think yeah. you lose perspective on size, the size of the boat and the size of, of Lake Superior. Yeah. So the two ships, the Anderson and the Superior, uh, excuse me, the Fitzgerald, would remain in radio contact with one another for the duration of their shared course. The Fitzgerald, being larger and faster of the two, initially took the lead when they first started out. Mm -hmm. And the distance between the vessels ranged anywhere from 10 to 15 miles, which seems rather large I to was, me. Yeah. 10 miles, eh, you know, between two vessels is, is decent. 15 miles, you're getting awfully far apart. I'm wondering, I, I thought they were in visibility of each other the whole time. At points, they were. But at 15 miles or at probably anything beyond 10 miles, you wouldn't even be able to see lights. Right. And yeah. I think what they were thinking at this point was that if they could get out ahead of the storm, that they could potentially beat it. I see. And, and get to their destinations okay. before the storm even you know played a factor. But now it's 7 p.m. on November 9th. The National Weather Service had issued a gale warning for Lake Superior in anticipation of this. So within a few hours, all right, four and a half hours, two things are happening. It's becoming evident that the storm is tracking toward Lake Superior and it's building up in intensity. So I had to do a little bit of research here. A gale warning. Yeah. In a gale, the wind speeds range anywhere from 34 to 40 knots. And they predicted east to northeasterly winds during the night. So 
30 to 34 to 40 knots is substantial. And the way that it's tracking will definitely affect any sort of vessel or boat that's on Lake Superior. So if you're the captain of these two ships, you realize, listen, what's behind you is getting bigger. And you either have to pick up your pace or decide on a different course to possibly take in order to avoid catastrophe. So Captain McSorley, and again, he's the Edmund Fitzgerald, and Captain Cooper of the Anderson jointly agree to take a more northerly route across Lake Superior. And they would essentially hug the coastline of Canada, where you had some highlands on the Canadian shore that would protect you from, from the winds, at least a little bit. This took them between places like Isle Royale, uh, Kiwanwanu Peninsula, they would later then make a turn to the southeast to reach the shelter of Whitefish Point. Now, this was all around 2 a.m., so it's dark. We know that the storm is building behind them. They're, they're kind of planning. Let's take a more northerly route and uh, hopefully avoid some of the more damaging winds by being along the coast. So weather conditions continue to deteriorate. The gale warnings that have been issued at 7 p.m. on November 9th are now upgraded to storm warnings in the early morning of November 10th. While conditions were bad, winds were uh, gusting now to 50 knots. Sea levels uh, were up to 12 to 16 foot waves. Jeez. Both captains had, had piloted their vessels in similar conditions and seemingly were not overly concerned. Still not concerned? Still not concerned. I mean, they, they know what they're dealing with at this point. But because of their past experiences, it's not really anything they hadn't seen before. Because in my head, uh, waves that size, that's imminent danger. Turn yeah. back around, like start sending out warnings. Mayday. And, and you know, I, I think it, it, it attests to their experience and, and also how big the boats are. Because in, in one of the True. things I didn't mention, I failed to mention that I should have. Um, I talked about the literal size of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's got 29 crewmen on it. Mm -hmm. That includes Captain McSorley. So that's, I mean, it, that's a lot of people to work a boat. Right. So in the early afternoon of November 10th, early afternoon, the Fitzgerald had passed, uh, excuse me, was approaching Caribou Island. The Anderson was just approaching um, Misha Picoton. Sure. I hope I pronounced that correctly. About three miles um, off a point called West End Light. And the reason this is important because they're going to start to move away from the Canadian shore. Okay. They've hugged the Canadian shore as much as they could for some protection from the winds. Now they're starting to head south, and this will take them away from the coast. So as I did my research, there was some terminology here that I was not all that familiar with, and I figured the listeners probably weren't either. Okay. So the way it works, and maybe for some people this sounds like common sense, winds generate waves, but the size of the wave depends on several things, Okay. The wind speed, the stronger the winds, the larger the force, and thus the bigger the wave. The wind must also be steady, a constant wind speed. So when you talk about like a con, you know, storms that we experience in upstate New York, wind gusts up to, right. or, you know, consistent winds are, are different. So you're not talking like a tornado wind where there's a huge gust of wind. Correct. You're talking more of a hurricane, Sustained. constant, yes. sustainable yep. wind. Okay. So the duration of the winds, the longer the wind blows over the open water, the larger the waves. Okay. Yep. Here, here's a term that maybe you are or, or aren't familiar with. What's called the fetch? No. Okay. So this is the distance of open water over which the wind blows. Mm -hmm. So the larger the fetch, the larger the waves. And the way I kind of conceptualized this was as storms move across 
flat land they tend to build right right because you don't have mountains or things like that to break up the no wind. resistance no yeah. resistance so the same makes sense over open water you you'd experience the same sort of phenomenon makes total sense yeah so at 3 a.m now on november 10th the winds were reported as coming from the northeast at 42 knots so the fitzgerald and anderson proceeded together the fitzgerald uh, ahead of the anderson still and they continued to maintain radio contact the anderson also had radar locating and continuing to track the position of the fitzgerald fast forward to 7 a.m now the storm passes over marquette michigan now this is the last time really it's going to pass over land now you're talking about this storm moving out over water so it's it's starting its path across lake superior making quick ground on the two freighters and at this point captain cooper observes a rather alarming maneuver by captain mcsorley okay cooper maintains that he watched the edmund fitzgerald pass too close to what's what's called six fathom shoal which is a portion near what I referenced earlier, Caribou Island. Now, the reason this is concerning for Cooper, he could clearly see the ship in the beacon or lighthouse on Caribou on his radar set and could measure the distance between them. He and his officers watched the Fitzgerald pass right over a very dangerous area of shallow water that he himself on the Anderson was purposely avoiding. And this is going to come into play later because there, there is some speculation that possibly at this point, the Anderson might have struck ground i'm sorry not the anderson the fitzgerald might have um struck ground and and possibly possibly um created damage that was starting to let water in before the the storm was even upon them so it wasn't the the cause of the accident speculation once again speculation part of this is almost like a missing chapter mystery correct and i'll kind of get to that later because we don't know why it went down so here's the deal, though, is it was was the maneuver bringing him close to that shallow water? Was that maneuver to avoid something from the storm or avoid is it something just... from the storm? Make a quicker route. Either way, could it possibly have led to damage that later on would speed up the process of the Fitzgerald sinking? Again, it's a theory. Yeah. Um, by this time, uh, snow and rising spray had obscured the Fitzgerald from sight. So the Anderson had been able to follow it on radar. They had contact on uh, radio and they could see the lights of the Fitzgerald. But now the Fitzgerald is moving out of sight because of the weather. And the Anderson is predicting that it's now 17 miles ahead of them on radar. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So the gap between the two boats is, is opening up. So two important factors are coming into play now. Number one. The ships enter a stretch where land is not as close, mm -hmm. which I mentioned earlier. Number two, the winds are changing direction drastically, which means combined, um, they're not as protected as they had hoped to be. And they're farther apart, obviously, if danger you know, does occur. Just after noon on the 10th, Captain Cooper makes radio contact with a third ship, the Ava 4, and reported that, this is Captain Cooper, they were experiencing a bad list or a sway in the boat. And the, the heavy seas over the deck were some of the worst that Anderson had ever been in. So they're starting to get the repercussions from this storm by so noon. They're not necessarily taking on water, but right. the, the seas are, are crossing. And over. that's the Anderson. So they're they're not they're not really privy as to what's going on with uh the Fitzgerald. Right. But they know they're starting to see some really bad 
uh, waves. And now remind me, this is a, a significantly, obviously, smaller ship. Yes. So Smaller of the two. Assuming size would play a factor in this, they're going to slow down even more. Right. Um, which increases that gap between the Fitzgerald. Correct. Yes. And, 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 and the, the two captains are going to start to address that. Too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So at 3.30 p.m. that afternoon, Captain McSorley of the Fitzgerald radios Captain Cooper and says, quote, Anderson, this is the Fitzgerald. I have a fence rail down, two vents lost or damaged, and we're experiencing a list. I'm checking down. Will you stay by me till I get to Whitefish? End quote. So McSorley saying I'm checking down essentially means he's checking down his speed to allow the Anderson to close the distance for safety. Okay. The other thing is the two vents lost or damaged. Um, if you were to look at that gap between the pilot house and what I described, the, the stern section, that long stretch where the cargo hatch was, you have hatch covers, which are essentially like doors leading to a storm cellar. Yep. And it appears at this point, most people think that the clamps on there were starting to break and those doors might be flapping open, which means anything you know, in terms of waves or rain coming onto the ship or over the railings would be now going into the boat. Oh, wow. All right. So you, you have some, really for the first time, the Edmund Fitzgerald, some concern with what they're telling the Anderson. So much so that, hey, we're going we're gonna to slow down so you can catch up to us. Captain Cooper asks Ms. McSorley at this point if he had his pumps going, the pumps meaning pumping out water. And McSorley said, yes, both of them. As the afternoon wore on, radio communications with the Fitzgerald concerned navigational information, but no extraordinarily alarming reports beyond what I just shared with you were offered up by Captain McSorley. It seems to be just more, this is where we are. We're slowing down. The gap is closing. Nothing else regarding the condition of the boat. At about 5.20 p.m., the crest of a wave and I think this is interesting because Anderson, in, in interviews and books that he writes, he remembers exactly 520, a wave that hits the boat. At 520, the crest of a massive wave smashes the Anderson starboard lifeboat, making it unusable. Captain Cooper reported winds from the northwest and west at a steady 58 knots, gusts up to 70 knots. And the seas at this point, upwards, Phil, ready? to 25-foot waves. Oh, my God. 25-foot waves. So according to Captain Cooper on the Anderson at about 6.55 p.m., he and the men in the Anderson's pilot house felt what they describe as a bump, and, and the Anderson lurches violently. And then I love he, he turned to see a monstrous wave engulfing their entire vessel from stern. So it's coming from the rear. The wave worked its way along the deck, crashing onto the back of their pilot house, driving the bow of the Anderson down into the sea. Oh, my God. So Captain Cooper later recounts, and it, there's a great description of this, that I, it, you know, for a podcast, I think it, it works well. He said, quote, then the Anderson just raised up and shook herself off of all the water like a big dog. Another wave, just like the first one, or bigger, hit us again. I watched those two waves head down the lake. It's like it hits the Anderson. Yeah. And then you could picture like a current taking the wave off into the distance towards the Fitzgerald. And I think those were the two that sent her under. Oh, my God. 
Morgan Clark, who was the first mate of the Anderson, kept watching the Fitzgerald on radar. Because again, there's no visual sight of her still. Right. Uh, set to calculate her distance from one other, from some of the other vessels near Whitefish Point. Clark kept losing sight of the Fitzgerald on the radar from sea return, meaning that seas were so high that they were actually interfering with the radar reflection. So the radar was getting bumped off because the waves are so high. There's so much going There's on. There's right so now. much this going is insane. on. Yeah. So the distance between the Anderson and the Fitzgerald is too much to actually visually see them. The radar that they're keeping track of the Edmund Fitzgerald with is being disrupted because of the size of the waves. All right. So Clark, who's the first mate, was successful in making radio contact with the Fitzgerald at about 7, 10 p.m. Fitzgerald, this is the Anderson. Have you checked down? Again, saying, have, are you going as slow as you can? Yes, we have. Fitzgerald, we are now about 10 miles behind you and gaining about one and a half miles per hour. Fitzgerald, there's a target 19 miles ahead of us. So the target would be nine miles on ahead of you. So they're referencing, hey, yep. get to this point and you might be able to either safely dock or gain some protection from the, uh, from the land itself. Okay. By the way, Fitzgerald, how are you making out with your problems? Asked Clark. Fitzger the Fitzgerald responds, we're holding our own. Clark signs off with, okay, fine, I'll be talking to you later. So the radio signal, or what's called the PIP of the Fitzgerald, kept getting obscured by sea return. At around 7.15 p.m., the PIP, the radar, was lost entirely. Morgan Clark called the Fitzgerald again, and there was no answer. 7.22 p.m., November 10th, 1975. All right, welcome back from the break. I don't know if uh, anyone else needed that little breather. I felt like I was actually in the story. Um, you did a fantastic job, Phil, of, of you know describing everything in such detail where I, I honestly felt like I could see the waves, I could visualize everything. Um, and now I feel like I'm in, a, I'm in the story of it where <laughs> I started to get a little anxious thinking about this, this massive wave um, that's coming at, at, I believe you said 70 knots. Right. So I, I had to look this up because I'm so curious. My brain doesn't work in knots. It works in miles an hour. And I don't know if the listeners have that same kind of mentality, mm -hmm. but 70 knots is 80 miles an hour. That's a category one hurricane um, wind, sustained wind. And then you got to be thinking, OK, so you have this massive wave that just hits the deck of the Anderson, almost takes it under. But somehow mm -hmm. it, you know, dispels this and, and pushes it towards the Fitzgerald, which, if I'm correct, they may think this could have been the wave there there is yes because beyond that no more radio acknowledgement and so here we are they're they're right. like all right it's a matter of time before this wave catches yeah. up to them um and once they make the that last mm -hmm. connection that communication that's all they don't have any response right no more radar no more radio contact no more visuals essentially and in in combination with those waves that anderson remembers so vividly and cooper um, the, it, it, he just, he, Cooper said like, this had to have been the waves. It was so yeah. violent on his ship and he watched it go out. Now the Coast Guard will actually later on, Phil, they, they acknowledge that there were, um, reports of waves upwards to 40 feet during that particular that's, storm. That's unbelievable. So between the, you know, some of the terminology we used earlier, the waves, but also the distance between consecutive waves and, and what I'm going to explain a little bit later on. 
Again, part of this is a mystery. And we have to theorize as to exactly what happened to bring down a massive, you know, ship like that. And to put this in perspective, you know, some of the some of the tsunamis that Japan mm -hmm. has had to endure over the course of you know the last century. I mean, the one that that hit, I believe it was what twenty ten or twenty eleven. Yeah. I mean, they had twenty five foot, thirty mm -hmm. foot uh, tidal wave tsunamis coming at their their island um, at a rate of sixty to up to hundred miles an hour. So, and, it, and we know what kind of damage that costs. You know. Uh, killing massive amounts, untold, right. you know, amounts of people, as well as damaging, you know, nuclear silos and that kind of thing. So when you take that and you put it towards a boat, I don't know how you survive this. No, it, it, it really goes to show the power of Mother Nature when it comes to water and wind and yeah. storms like this. And and I had to look this up, too. There's conflicting reports, as we talked during the break, but uh, of the size of the Anderson. The Anderson, mm -hmm. I thought, was I, I was picturing in my head the right. Anderson being almost like a, um, a tugboat size. Mm -hmm. It is certainly not. I mean, from what I'm gathering, it's over 600 feet in length. So this is not um, a tiny boat in comparison. This is a massive boat. And for that to take on the water and be able to yeah. kind of brush that off. Exactly. Here's the thing. Beyond that point, there's no sign. No sign now of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's completely gone. So if we think of like the Titanic... There was there was at least a, a window of time when it sunk. Right. Something happened that brought this boat down almost immediately. So there is some speculation to that. And and Captain Cooper is now understanding the severity of what's going on. He starts to radio ahead to um, other other ships near Whitefish Bay, which Whitefish Bay is really where, where they were trying to get to. They're close enough yeah. to say, listen we need some help out here. We've lost complete contact with the Edmund Fitzgerald. Is there anybody at this point who can come out and assist? And the storm is so bad that he has to preface this by saying, you know, as long as you're not putting yourself and your vessel in, in peril, no one leaves. No one leaves. All the other boats that he contacts says, listen, it's so bad. We can't leave. You know, we'd be putting ourselves in danger. So the Anderson, Phil, throughout all of this, the Anderson actually turns out to be the primary vessel in the search taking the lead. Wow. So as they get closer to their destination, now it becomes almost like a search for what happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald. And with the ship pounding and rolling badly, the crew of the Anderson, this is kind of, this is very telling and very eerie. The Anderson discovered the Fitzgerald's two lifeboats oh. and, and, and some other debris, but no sign of survivors. But what this leads to is it happened so fast that no one was even able to get to the lifeboats. I mean, you have lifeboats on board for emergencies, but no one out of the 29 crew members are found in the lifeboat. So the boat must have sunk so quickly that the lifeboats weren't even an option. So if, if I remember correctly, before break, there was a gap of about 10 miles, nine or 10 miles right. between safety mm -hmm. and the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yes. And there was about, what was it? 15 or 16 miles mm -hmm. back was the Anderson as it yeah. starts to creep forward a little bit. So it really was in no man's land because you okay. weren't near another vessel. Right. And you weren't close enough to land. So about how much time did it take for the Anderson to catch up to where the point of the Fitzgerald was? Uh, about an hour and a half. So in an hour and a half, you would mm -hmm. think there'd be some sort of sign. Something. Something. Right. I mean, an hour and a half is a long time on, on in a storm and on waves like this, but to find only minimal debris and the two lifeboats and nothing else. Like, and where did this massive vessel go? You have the last piece of communication. Right. So when, so the last time between the Fitzgerald responding 
in the Fitzgerald not responding is about is, how much time? It's about 7.15 to 7.22, okay? Um, to give you perspective, I'll, I'll get to the next reference to time here. Because you are on a major body of water. It's the 1970s, all right? You know, there have to be at least safety precautions. Right. Maybe not by 2023, the safety precautions you would expect. Because like any you know, tragedy, you learn and react to mm -hmm. it for future tragedies. But at this point, it's the Anderson and no one else. But there's one other vessel, a boat called the William Clay Ford, decided to leave the safety of Whitefish Bay to join in the search at the time. They're not really sure as to what exact time the Ford departed. But the Coast Guard knows, has in their record, the Coast Guard launches a fixed wing, what's called an, an HU-16, an aircraft, at 10 p.m. So if we're doing the math, it's about two and a half hours from the last, you know, 722 was the last time they had radio contact with the Fitzgerald. The Coast Guard is launching an aircraft at 10. Yeah. All right. And dispatches two cutters, the Naugatuck and the Woodrush. The Naugatuck arrives at 1245 p.m. on November 11th. So we've just crested into the next day. The Woodrush arrives on November 14th, having journeyed all the way from Duluth, Minnesota. So they only have one boat that's close by. Another one that's so far away, it had to take days to get there. So this isn't, listen, by all accounts, they weren't even thinking this was, let's find as many survivors. It's going to be a recovery as opposed to, you know, trying to trying to find survivors at this point. What's hard to fathom. And, you know, I, 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 I liken this back to the movie Titanic when, mm -hmm. when there was a, a point where they said, we're taking on water. And, and the captain's like, well, this can't sink. It's the Titanic. Right. And they said, well, this is made of iron and steel. I, I reassure mm -hmm. you, Captain, it, 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 it will sink. sink. Now, and, and if we, the two theories that I'm going to get to both make sense on something that, how did it happen quickly? How did it happen, you know, where, where you wouldn't have any survivors? Because so, it's got to be the speed, right? Because, I mean, exactly. if you have the lifeboats that are that are there with empty vessels. And like it, I said, weren't even touched. Untouched. Right. That's unbelievable. So the Coast Guard goes into conducting an extensive and thorough search on November 14th. So, again, this happened late November 10th. All right. November 14th, a U.S. Navy plane equipped with magnetic anomaly detectors located a strong contact 17 miles north-northwest of Whitefish Point. Again, where the Edmund Fitzgerald was trying to get to. During the uh, following three days, the Coast Guard cutter Woodrush uses what's called a side scan sonar. They located two large pieces of wreckage in the same area. Another sonar survey was conducted November 22nd all the way through the 25th. So they're, they're able to at least see, we're not talking details, it's just, hey, there's a massive right. you know, collection of metal in this one area. It's gotta be it. The following May, all right, because you have to, you go through winter, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's not until May of 1976 that the Woodrush goes back out again on the scene to conduct a third side scan sonar survey. And contacts were strong enough to bring in the U.S. Navy's uh, Curve 3, it was called, which is a controlled underwater recovery vehicle. So now they're saying, okay, we found it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's spring, so we're not dealing with the elements in the cold water. Is there any way we can recover any portion of this? The Curve 3 unit took 43,000 feet of videotape oh and 900 photographs of the wreck. And on May 20th, 1976, the words Edmund Fitzgerald were clearly seen on the stern 
upside down and get this phil 535 feet below the surface oh of lake superior and I, and I would encourage you it's a little bit eerie but it's worth it if you've stuck with us this entire time and enjoyed this story going to youtube it's one of the good things about youtube you have all of this footage really and it's it's essentially there's no audio to it really it's just the the pictures and the video taken by the remote control submarines going around the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's very, very eerie, I have to tell you. So I don't know if this is the direction you're taking us uh, towards the end of this, but I'm going to ask you because my curiosity mm -hmm. is still peaked. I think I know where you're going. All right. So at the speed at which this is, is going down, right. I'm picturing the way the Titanic went down. And I don't know. I mean, at least the people in the Titanic, they were, they were able to get on some sort of lifeboat because they knew there must have been no preparation. And even if, if the, the boat was going down, you would, have, you would assume that they were able to at least jump out to swim to those right. boats? So I think if we're thinking about the Titanic, the big difference is the break mm -hmm. in the middle of the boat. Okay. Okay, because here are the two theories. I go back to the Fitzgerald uh, going into too shallow of water. Yep. Okay. So is there the possibility that it scraped bottom? on the shallow shoal and actually ruptured the hull plates and allowing water to pour into the cargo hold. That's one of the theories. Okay. The second theory, and this seems to be the most widely ones with the accounts of Anderson um, and, and, and the speed that it went down and the inability of anybody on board to do anything about it. Here's the theory. Number two, it's called the big wave theory. So another theory suggests that even if the Fitzgerald was taking on water, the ship really should have been able to ride it out. It's if a huge Anderson ship. was right. able to, yeah unless she was hit by one of those 30 to 40 foot waves. All right. With the ship already lying lower than oh. usual in the water, we go back to something we pointed out. Yes, it was the matter of 26 and a half to 27 and a half feet with that water line carrying all of that iron ore. But does that make a difference under these circumstances? Absolutely. So if you picture the wave and you picture the boat going frontward, pilot house first into one of these waves, the wave comes over, driving the head of the boat downward, like a head with the Anderson, in conjunction with all of that water on the front of the boat, all of the weight of the oar then being shifted forward. Mm -hmm. It would have just done a nosedive toward the bottom of the lake. I hope I did a good enough. Yeah, to, yeah you know, if you picture a massive terrifying. wave, the pilot house being driven down, everything shifting. And essentially the back of the boat, very much like the Titanic, raising up out of the water, but it remaining intact, it would have just and driven darting. the entire thing oh down. So again, you would have had no time to react. This and there would wave. have been very right. little. So, I mean, they look at it now and, and the damage of, you know, what happened to the boat as it descended the 500 plus feet, you know, as it hit the bottom kind of obscures exactly how it wrecked. But were the bodies still inside? That's what we're going to finish up with, Phil. So 29 men were lost when the Edmund Fitzgerald went down. There was absolutely no conclusive evidence to determine the sinking of the ship other than theories that we just went over. The bell of the ship was the only thing recovered, and it's now on display at what's called the Great Lake Shipwreck Museum as a memorial to our lost crew. They actually have video footage. They have pictures. They've seen bodies. All the families have decided, let the bodies lie where they lie.
Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Hornder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>